welcome to hey great shot this is the great shot podcast brought to you by crack rackets my name's alex gruskin what we're going to be doing on today's podcast we're going to talk strictly american tennis we're going to break down the top 10 stories in 2019 the things that have caught our attention and the reason i keep using a plural tone is because of course when i do a state of the union podcast about american tennis i have to bring in a former on the rise blogger you know his work from zootennis.com from his work at tennis panorama of course he is a noted tennis twitter personality and if i am the scribe he of course is my master, Jonathan Kelly. Hey, great shot, and welcome back to the program. Hey, good to be here. Uh, The first one I wanted to talk about, and I think to me this is a product of, and maybe I'm just more tuned in than I ever was. I know, obviously, you talk about uh, activism from players. This is not a new concept, but I think with the struggles we saw with the transition to or with the controversies we've seen at you know with the ATP leadership between uh, the presidents and leaving the Gimmelstab controversy. Ooh, I can't believe I didn't put the Gimmelstab controversy on my list. That's got to be one of the top ten stories as well. Um, but just in general, oh, uh, uh, combating climate change, I should say the environmental changes uh, that the tour wants to take, both on the ATP and WTA sides. I think more than ever, with these problems and these changes that are happening, in, and maybe even problems is a poor connotation, but just with all of the change that's going on in tennis. I think more than ever, and this loops back to Americans in particular, because you look at you know people like uh, Jared Hiltzik or Nicole Gibbs or J.C. Aragonier, just all these people who seem to be at the forefront of every issue, wanting to give their opinion as people who are you know in the world of tennis. I have been so, I guess, and I have enjoyed so much the, these players who have seemed to found their find their voice and just seem that they're not afraid to talk about any issue that comes to mind. And maybe that's just a product of social media being more available. But to me, it's so refreshing to get to see their opinions week in, week out. Um, <laughs> you know, that sounds great until uh, the opinion is one that's abhorrent to what you might fundamentally believe. And that's, you know, that's why this is tough for me to talk about. Bring um, it like real here, because uh, through the 2016 election, I was not shy about, you know, including my personal views on on my tennis Twitter and uh, that was a tough election for me and uh, for I think for a lot of people and so I decided that if I was going to keep going with tennis uh, tennis Twitter that I was going and you know support the country that I love and their players I was going to have to uh, make a, a firm decision to separate my you know liberal progressive politics from my from my um, investment in the sport. And so I, I've made a really just, you know, strong commitment over the last year and a half. And it's not always easy because um, I do have strong opinions to, uh, to separate these things. And, you know, when, when tennis Sandgren um, last year got to the, the, the quarters of, um, of Australia and, and the firestorm that erupted around that, it, it 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 just um it sucked. I think it kind of underlines though that um uh it's great to it, it's great when a player or a, you know a public figure expresses an opinion that we that we agree with and uh it it's really um and I'm not just talking about 
conservative opinions at all because, uh, or, you know, conservative players at all. I think that when a player does decide to, to, um, to make something, you know, strongly felt, then, then it gets, it gets applauded in some circles and, and in other circles it doesn't. And so, um, I would never begrudge somebody their, their platform. And I think it's great when, when people do it and especially when they do it for things that I, that I believe in. And I don't think it's possible completely in, in the United States in particular to separate out, um, uh, partisan politics from, from social issues. Uh, it might be, it might feel good to do that, but ultimately, you know, a lot of social issues get played out in the policy realm. And, and, uh, so you, you can't say, Oh, I'm against global warming. And then at the same time, not, you know, point out that there's a, a political party that considers global warming to be a hoax, right? Or if you're doing that, it's ingenuous. So I don't want to get too much more into that, but I do say that it's something that I think about every day, like a lot every day and probably way more than I should. And, and the compromise that I've come to uh, in terms of how do I, how do I, you know, sleep at night and still, uh, still do this like fun kind of like thing that doesn't involve me, but involves like tweeting statistics out and, and, you know, watching tennis matches and getting emotionally invested in people that I don't know from, from, uh, from, you know, the stranger next door, you know, that, that's sort of the compromise that I've come to on that. And uh, I appreciate you sharing your feelings about that. I think that's something every tennis fan can relate to given uh, the, I guess, vibrantness of tennis Twitter, that it is such an active community that it seems like so many people who have thoughts on the game so willing to share it via that platform. I wouldn't say this is a counterpoint. All I would add to that is that to see players chime in, regardless of their opinion on things such as pay equity for players ranked, you know, 100 to 500, finding reasonable solutions when the transition tour was boxing out players from getting, you know, expanding qualifying draws or uh, or just expanding entrance draws, doing all of these things. The issues about wild cards, as I mentioned, can tennis be a, a greener sport moving forward, lower its carbon footprint? All of the, you know, things to as basic as well as, you know, scoring changes, no ad versus ad scoring, uh, should there be coaching going on. I just appreciate that it seems like these discussions have taken a step forward and that players now much more willing to give their opinions on, you know, not only political topics that expand outside the realm of tennis, but the issues that are most uh, pertinent to tennis players. Well, to counter your counterpoint, I would say Uh, that, you know, there's, there's, uh, there's an imbalance there as well because, you know, social media is, is, is true is, can be fake. You know, mm-hmm. not every picture that you take gets put on Instagram, you know, sometimes they're filtered and um, those players who might feel like they can be, or, you know, that they will be applauded for being the loudest on a particular issue around say the ITF, you know, changes or, or what have you, are maybe going to be the ones who say that publicly, but we don't know what's going on behind closed doors. And the, the politics of tennis can seem completely impenetrable. Um, and so even when like a, a hospital or something like, like that is, is putting out their, their points or demands and making that public, you know, there's a dozen other players who may not be on social media or not be on there for anything other than, you know, grand ambassadorships, but who are still, 
have plenty to say about things behind the scenes and still are, are pulling strings. So I'm not sure that we're getting a fully fleshed out argument, um, but rather, you know, maybe we're getting posturing. I, and I, I can't say that I followed it all that close, any of these issues all that closely, um, because, again, I'm, I'm trying to stick to what's happening in between the lines for my own personal reasons. Um, but, yeah, we might have to uh, disagree to agree on this because, uh, um, uh, you know, I can't I again, you know, I don't I don't know these people. I don't know how authentic their their feelings are about these things. And I don't know. Um, I don't I, I don't also don't know what it's really like to be a uh, a, I, I don't know what it's like to be a 500th ranked player who's, you know, just trying to um, put fly to their next tournament. Right, exactly. And I don't I also don't know if, you know, a change that was made in the ITF qualities draws i don't know if we can even say even though it seems to have been um pretty much a failure uh the 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 transition tour because we don't have data of how it played out over five years we can't say for sure i mean it may seem obvious but we can't say for sure that players were definitely being boxed out i mean we saw that you know some players i'd like to see the statistics of players who qualified for um uh, who got in the main draw of the newly expanded challengers from their ITF rankings, if they were doing better or worse than players who were similarly situated, you know, a year ago. And, and without that kind of data, all of our pronouncements are, are basically, um, are, are kind of like half the best, you know? I mean, I, it seems like it was a big cluster. And I think that it probably, um, is good that they're going back to the system that they were, but I can't look and say, oh, in five years, if we had gone to this other X-Men timeline that, you know, the world would not have been destroyed like it actually was because we didn't have the transition tour. You know, we, we have no way of knowing that. So um, and that's why I'm even shy about making those pronouncements, which makes me a terrible podcast guest. I know. <laughs> but well, the one thing I will say, one thing I will say is that I have paid less attention to futures um, because the, they're not getting points for the ATP. It's less exciting when somebody wins their first match at a future level tournament because it's not getting reflected anywhere that people are, are seeing. Um, and that I'm not a fan of the 48 player draws of the challenger because it feels exhausting by the time that you get to the sixth <laughs> round of a tournament. And especially because you're doing it from Monday through Sunday, like you have to get them all these matches in. I just feel like by the end of the tournament, there's been too much tennis played in, in little rock or, or Leon or whatever it might be. It, it, it doesn't feel comfortable to me. The one thing I will say is that as somebody who literally types in all of the rankings of American players every week when the rankings come out, it's much nicer to only have to type out 100 of those for women and 70 of those for men versus 180 of those for women and 130 of those for men. Can I just say an hour and 20 in, that was not the conversation I expected to have, but I really am saying this is why I always try and bug you to get you on the pot as much as possible, because I so appreciate your perspective, the counterpoint to my counterpoint. I thought, again, perfectly stated, uh, just to, to finish off that topic real quick on activism, things, again, maybe it's because they agree with my perspective, but things that I 
just wasn't aware of before that just seems so much more prevalent, whether it's Kyrgios' foundation, Kevin Anderson's foundation, J.C. Aragoni and the work he's done to uh, raise diabetes awareness and how you can continue to be an athlete despite having diabetes and all he's done, uh, you know, Nicole Gibbs uh, and all she does, uh, Amanda Nisimova seems to have been have an activism streak to her as well. I appreciate seeing that side. Now, of course, there is the counter if you disagree with them. Is there backlash? Everything you said holds true. That was just my final thoughts on that topic. Um, now, in terms of the transition tour itself and the things you mentioned not liking, I, I in terms of just futures events, why I don't know how we don't have live streams for these yet. And I know they they you know in Wichita, Kansas. I don't know what club they're playing at, but it feels like that club could definitely have PlaySite if they wanted. If you know wherever you go, it feels like PlaySite. Just I, I saw how well it worked in at throughout the college season. I know these colleges probably have a little bit more money to give to that than say a random futures event being hosted in uh, Decatur, Illinois, for example. Um, But it would just be, I I don't know how in 2019 we don't have live streaming for that sort of thing. Um, Adding on, yes, the tennis gets exhausting, but I always appreciate, it feels like all these tournaments now have, you know, if you watch enough of them, you're going to get familiar with these names because so many of them are playing week in, week out at the Challengers. We've also seen one of the negative effects. There was the new Challenger in Phoenix, all of these grass Challengers going on uh, just uh, throughout these events, one of the flaws of the transition tour. We saw players ranked, you know, 160 get boxed out of main draws because the the, to, the opportunity to win ATP points being so few and far between. We saw professional-level guys. I think Gofen lost first week of Indian Wells. He goes down, plays uh, the Phoenix Challenger. I think Jeremy Chardy did the same thing. Yeah, those were clearly negatives of the transition tour. But the thing I appreciated the most that you mentioned and something just to elaborate on, I don't even know if I'm happy or upset that they abandoned it so early. Because as you mentioned, how can you be expected to learn if something is working or not if you only give it six months try? And I think, again, that loops back to this player activism. The backlash to it was so aggressive uh, from these players from these lower level ranked players uh, that we're never going to get to see a chance to see if it works. But I agree. It's like, you're scrapping this new idea that you were so proud of after two seconds. Like, are we sure that's the best solution? Well, the reason I think it is a good solution is because uh, they didn't do their, they didn't do their groundwork. They didn't do their homework ahead of time. They didn't put out uh, a plan that made sense and had buy-in at the beginning. And if you don't have it that at the beginning, then, you're really just going on a wing and a prayer. And as somebody who kind of tries to pay attention to te- like the inner workings of tennis as much as I can, it's not as much as some people, but you know, I would say I'm one of the top of all the human beings in the history of the world. I'm probably in the top 1% of people paying attention and probably a lot higher than that. And I didn't really get what was going on. And if I, somebody who watches tennis every day, pays attention to tennis every day, like goes through the social media of tennis every day. If I go into a bar and somebody asks me, so what's up with this transition tour? Can't give you a relatively good explanation of it in a minute and a half, then God help you (laughs) trying to explain this to the rest of the world, you know? So I think the fact that they didn't have the buy-in from players, that they couldn't explain easily why they were doing this, what benefit it was supposed to have to the sport, and how their structure was actually going to create that benefit, um, what problem they were trying to fix, the fact that they couldn't really articulate that at all very well, I think tells you why it failed and how it failed. Yeah, I 
completely agree with you. I was, I mean, it's just I my joke I was going to make real quick before getting back to that was I said earlier we're not going to hit the two hour mark. I no longer know if that's going to be the case. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, it's just the the transparency, the communication, nothing worked in rolling out the transition tour. And I again, pay parity. Call it the transition tour anymore. Like yeah. they can't even come up with a name. Yeah. No, I completely agree with you, and it's something that obviously – it's a problem that though it's kind of pushed aside for a moment, it is far from fixed because you know the schedule – all of this loops into the pay parity is that was the point of the transition tour to make it a more feasible uh, – you know, make it more feasible to be a lower-level player as you're transitioning, and now we're just back to square one. So we'll see where that goes. But any final thoughts on that? Are you ready to move on? Yeah, just that I don't think the transition tour actually addressed the pay equity part of it at all. It, I mean, it cut people off of the rankings, but that didn't stop them from playing professional tennis. They were still playing at the future events. They were still playing at the 15Ks or the W15s and the M15s. And there were still, I think, maybe not as many of them, but there's still quite a few of them. So I think once we go back to the rankings in a couple of months, like they were going to be, I don't think you're going to see any real sub- substantial difference in, in how pay is doled out to how many people. And, you know, I think what they were trying to do is cut out the, cut out the number of people who could call themselves professional tennis players. And I don't, I don't know who, I don't know who that benefits like professional baseball players. You know, I, I'm going to try to make an example, but like if, if you have a bunch of people playing minor league single A ball or something like that, and they're not making that much money, um, then you know by cutting out single A ball entirely and saying, "Oh, that's not professional baseball anymore," are you a improving the quality of the sport or b improving those people's lives? I don't, I don't know that that you are, and that seemed to be what they were trying to do on tennis. But I would think that more opportunities for more people, you know, even if they're only going to be the 1,000th best of what they do in the world. I don't, you know, I don't think that that improve, improves the quality of of the product that you're putting out there. And I don't think, it, you know, at the highest levels, and I don't think it improves those people's lives as they try it. You know, there's still incredible athletes. The thousandth ranked player in the world is still an incredible athlete who is still, you know, a, an asset to the sport. And I, I would hope that they're treated like that. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. Well, then my final storyline, and then we just have one more gimmick we're going to do, but <laughs> my final storyline, I promise, of 2019 to this point, and I, it's not, you know, I don't know if we're going to have an, as in-depth of a discussion on this as we did on some of the other topics, but I feel like it has to be mentioned Two college tennis coaches, Texas tennis coach Michael Center and former Georgetown tennis coach Gordon Ernst, I suppose it's former uh, UT tennis coach Michael Center at this point as well, swept up in the pay-for-play scandal, as we call it here, uh, in the college admissions scandal. Uh, Coach Center accused of accepting $100,000 in bribes to let a player onto the Texas team. Uh, Coach Gordon Ernst, a juicy $2.7 million over, I believe, five years to help players get into Georgetown. I don't even know what thoughts on it. I don't think I ever asked you so thoughts on this topic Jonathan Kelly nope but I'd love to hear your thoughts on it I mean the unintentional comedy of tennis getting swept up in this I guess 
uh, this is the angle I want to take. It's ridiculous. All of it's ridiculous. But the angle I want to say, and this is making light of it, I know it's a serious issue. There's obviously a ton of flaws exposed by this entire scandal in the NCAA flaws that much smarter, much more well-informed people than me have talked about why they're, why, you know, college athletes, the entire college athletic system is flawed. So I don't want to get into that right now. But I will say this. For $100,000, I'm not breaking the law. For $2.7 million <laughs> over five years, you have my attention. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, at least one of them seemed to do it the right way. Uh, to me, to me, it brings up um, the, the Georgetown thing. I mean, I, I honestly wasn't really a close follower of Georgetown's tennis program. It's unbelievable that that like that that's a school. And I guess it makes sense because tennis players, the background of a lot of tennis players, Georgetown's a school they'd obviously be circling yada, yada, yada. So I, I, I can see the appeal of bribing someone to get into Georgetown, but that of all of the programs, it's like, Oh, Georgetown tennis noted powerhouse. Uh, it's like, no, that, 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 I just can't believe they got mentioned. And that Texas that's, went on to win the NCAA championship this well, year. That's the thing. That's freaking nuts. That's the thing. I mean, okay, so Georgetown, you can sneak somebody on the back of the of the in you know and redshirt them, and like no one would even know or care until something broke. But the idea that the idea that you could put somebody on the team at a traditional powerhouse in a powerhouse conference, um, in such a, in in such a like um, a competitive sport like high level college tennis is is just kind of shocking assuming that all went down like there's like they say and the the fact that this team then can go on and win the national championship and this then be treated like oh this is something this is just something that can happen in the world it makes me feel like i'm living in a twilight zone which i already feel like i've been living in a twilight zone since 2016 so this is only like Oh, another bizarre thing just happened in the world. Okay, I guess we're just going to have to live with it. Um, and I think the thing that's most, the thing that nobody wants to talk about, because and it's a particularly tennis thing, and I think it may exist in other sports too. But like, if you're a college tennis fan, then you don't want college tennis to have a lot of black eyes. You don't want. I'm sorry. You do want. You don't want them to have black eyes. You don't want for your top story to be the team that just won their first championship to have done so after the, one of the biggest scandals to ever hit. You don't want another powerhouse school for their top story to be assistant coach, coach arrested for drugs. You don't want another one to be, oh, our team, you know, seemed to have won a, uh, a, a championship um, when – uh, some calls may they may have rooked a couple of calls. Um, you don't want that to like be the story of your team. You don't want to, you know. And yet, I feel like college tennis doesn't have that voice kind of pushing back and saying, you know, there's actually some as good of a product as this is, and as exciting as it, as it can be, it could be better. But there doesn't seem to be like a um, enough of people who follow it with a critical eye to really provide pushback when some messed up stuff happens. And I know I'm treading into waters that I probably am not qualified to tread into because again, I'm not the biggest person to follow college tennis, but 
without this sort of ombudsman voice or this this because um, there's I don't think there's any journalist you know there's hundreds of journalists who follow college football and college basketball at a national level but are there any real journalists who follow college tennis who are actual you know died in the world sports journalists and not like oh I'm a fan of the sports so I'm going to do a blog and I'm going to like do a podcast and all these things. Is there somebody who can step back and say, Oh, I'm, I'm like, I don't have a stake in this. The sport's going to survive well without me. So I don't have to be a cheerleader for the sport. Where can I say, Oh, there's a few really kind of messed up things that are happening and, and that need to be uh, need that we need to put in some structures in place so that we can be the best sport that we can be. Does any of that make sense? Well, I'll start by saying I feel like that was a passive-aggressive insult at me, saying I'm not a real journalist for covering college tennis. No, I'm just kidding. Um, you have, I, do you have a journalism degree that I didn't know about? <laughs> yeah, from BS University. From <laughs> uh, No, I'm just kidding. Sorry. Yeah, Westoff, violin that out. I, I don't want to get in trouble. Ah, you can leave it in. Whatever. Um, but yeah, I, I – yes. So that makes a ton of sense. And one of the reasons I wanted to bring up this issue is because it's opened the Pandora's box of other things that people dislike about college tennis such as, you know, nine, I don't want to say 99%, but a lot if not – you know, a high majority of rosters have spots for international players. Um, a, a lot of the best teams have significant contributions from international players, and oftentimes that leads to, you know, should college tennis be an American thing, yada, yada, yada. So that sort of opens that that box in college tennis recruiting as well, particularly because on the men's side, with there being, I think it's six and a half scholarships or something like that amongst the team, you know, the financials behind it already dicey. And mm. it's just, it yeah, as you mentioned, it opens up a lot of questions that would be, because as you know, I am one of, if not the biggest proponents, you know, no one enjoys college tennis in the country more than I do, maybe even in the world, you know, people may enjoy it equally, but no one more. And it's just whenever our sport, our sport, our sport gets dragged into the mud like this, as you mentioned, it's just not what you want. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, the international players is something that I've gone back and forth on, um, but uh, it is, it can be a little bit jarring because there's not another NCAA sport. I mean, there's other NCAA sports that bring in players from all over the world, and it's it's a wonderful thing. Yeah. But this is a, a sport that leads to professional, high-level tennis at, where you can see a, a team win with zero players from that country on on the team, and it's it becomes it becomes a jarring thing. And I, to some extent, there can be a disconnect. I think um, with with getting more fans. Um, and I was I was pointing out like uh, after Jub won the the NCAA singles that you know British journalists finally discovered that NCAA's exist because they just <laughs> they didn't they never talked about it before because you know their their British journalists are like journalists in every other country they're parochial that's not a bad thing it's just how they are and I myself am parochial and that's why I kind of push back. When I feel like people are like, oh, do you even care about tennis other than American tennis? I'm like, yeah, of course I do. But, you know, I have my parochialism and I'm not going to pretend that I don't just because, you know, it's it's not it's not hip uh, because, you know, Australians are incredibly parochial when it comes to tennis. Uh, French, incredibly parochial when it comes to tennis. Canadians. Oh, my God. Golly. <laughs> 
Uh, so, you know, so we, I feel like it's okay to be too. And, you know, just because I'm part of like this happens to be a, a political cultural hegemon doesn't make my parochialism any less valid than anybody else's. That being said, um, I got off on a huge tangent. Um, no, yeah, that I, I, can I say this is why I've been bugging you to come on the podcast <laughs> for the past three months because I was like, we have at least six tangents we're going to hit. If it keeps right. building up, it's going to be a three part pod. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, <laughs> all right. Storyline done. But um, congratulations to the University of of, uh, of Texas and my God, Stanford's program and on the women's side, they they that is one of the undersold stories of of college tennis, and I wish that got one-tenth of the the press that um the men's the men's program seemed to get i agree what when they won like 14 out of the past 16 or something crazy like just some ridiculous number uh of consecutive women's championships yeah the stanford program is the goal and they're not like they're not like you uconn basketball where they're going undefeated you know during the season like they they're a good team during the season they just seems to turn it on and I mean, they're an excellent team during the season. They just teams are turning on at tourney time, and and uh, just some wonderful, exciting, good players. And you know, one thing that you don't see are, are these controversies popping up on on the in the women's tennis game, like a uh, college tennis game, like you do with the men's college tennis game. They've won eleven of the NCAA championships, not fourteen out of sixteen. Eleven of the NCAA tournaments in the twenty-first century. Yeah, wow. the Stanford program is the real deal. Year in, year out, they bring it. So I, I completely agree with you. They deserve all of the credit in the world for maintaining. Yeah, there's years where they don't even play the indoors, right? And they just show up at yeah. the outdoors, and it's like we're gonna win anyways. Yep. And so I com- completely agree with you. Uh, it just such a such a fun college tennis season. Despite what we just mentioned, fans, I promise you, strictly from a tennis standpoint, it rarely gets better than going to a college tennis match because. Oh, and 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 when you go, like I go to you know some Northwestern matches, and uh, those are fun. But you know, I kind of wish that they had a little bit more of the the um, um, the atmosphere that some of the other big schools have because. Mm-hmm. I feel like that should happen at the pro level as well, but especially at the college level. Like every time you go, just bring it, bring it on every court, bring it for, you know, for every player, that number six player, the number one player, the doubles, like just go out and let your freak flag fly. As long as you're not being rude to the other team, like just go out and make your, you know, make it, make your fun. Cause that's the one place that you can do it in tennis with, with abandon. <laughs> I'm not going to reveal the name of this coach because I know they're a listener to or. This, uh, yeah, see, I didn't even reveal the gender. I know this coach <laughs> listens to the podcast. Uh, I was at a match. Well, this might – okay, this won't give away the coach. I was at a Michigan men's match, and they were playing this coach's team. And obviously me being a Michigan fan, despite having already – this was, you know, crack rackets had been established at this point. So people were aware of, I guess, I had the CR shirt on because you always got to rep the brand. And I was cheer Miles Shallot and I, friends from college. Obviously he was a senior on the, year, uh, on the team this year. And I was rooting with a particular vested interest, we'll say, in his match. And, <laughs> and this – this coach gave me a glare and I was silent. I was just, there were no more. I was like, Oh no, like I can't blow it with this coach. Like I really, I think that might give you a hint of who it was, but I was like, I cannot, uh, cannot mess this one up. So yes, I agree. College tennis, the, the best environment you'll find in my opinion. Uh, so That's definitely. Like, that reminds me of the glare that, uh, Johanna Conta gave me like four years <laughs> ago at the, uh, at the, uh, Quebec, uh, uh, 
uh, tournament when she played Asia Muhammad and they played a buster. I think it was like the final round of qualies. And this shows you like their careers have taken like widely different um, paths since then. But uh, Asia, who I think is a wonderful player and a, a, seems to be a really good person, like won this match. It was me, my boyfriend, and like two other people in the crowd in this cavernous stadium on the <laughs> college campus at the university uh, in, in Quebec City. And uh, I was just like going out of, you know, I was so excited for Asia. It was a, such a huge win for her. And after she won the last point, like, I was just like, I was thrilled. And Kota looked up with, looked up at me with like just hatred in her eyes. And she hasn't, <laughs> she hasn't lost to an American player since. Then. <laughs> <laughs> she beat, she, she beat uh, Sloane Stevens at, uh, at the French Open. She beat Serena. She's beaten. Everybody who's got in front of her, and you can just tell by this her, her conviction and her stroke, she's like, this one's for Jonathan. Bam! <laughs> I don't know if I've ever told this story on the podcast, but this year, Cincy, I had a press pass, which it remains it'll be relevant to the story in a second but i didn't know like what the decorum was what everything i was supposed to do with the press pass so i was literally like the first non-tennis playing human to get to the cincinnati stadium the friday before the tournament like it was me like the people who got there on friday to practice the people who were working the event and no one else <laughs> and so like i get there i'm like oh yeah 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 i get my press pass whatever and it starts to drizzle a little bit so everyone's fleeing inside and i'm like whatever I just got here like I clearly it's empty like I'm gonna wander a little bit so I go back to like court one do you have you ever been to Cincy yeah you know where they have the game where you can measure your serve speed mm-hmm. so that court like right next to that so I see Milos Raonic speaking of Canadians practicing just hitting serves in the rain on his own like just him and his coach and so I'm like Oh, like, this is fascinating to me. Like, I've never seen, a, like, a pro. Like, I'm, like, I'm going front row. Like, I'm just going to stand here and watch shamelessly. And, like, Rayonich kind of, like, gestures to his coach. And then the coach kind of, like, goes over to one of the guys on the side, like, part of the entourage. And one of the guys comes up to me and he goes, uh, what are you doing here? And I was like, no, 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 no. I was like, I have a press pass. Like, I swear, like, I'm not a creep. And he, goes, <laughs> he goes, oh, like can you just back up a little bit? And I was like, yeah, oh yeah. Like, I was like, sorry about that. But because it was raining and I was like, I was like in the one dry spot and I was like, oh, like, I'm sorry, blah, blah, blah. It's raining. Blah. I made a fool of myself. There's also the time <laughs> it was me and Angelique Kerber. I got caught just poured on in the rain from Cincy and it's me and her in the stairwell because like the press stairwell and the, and the player's locker room stairwell, the same one. And I'm just dripping all over the stairs and I'm like, Oh my God, like she's going to slip. And this is how I'm going to make my name is the oh podcast host kills Angelique Kerber. <laughs> so I just like stopped. I'm like, you know what? Just, just go ahead, Angelique. And she's like, Oh, like blah, blah, blah. I was like, no, no, no. Anything for a grand slam champ. And then I was like out of this scenario. Um, so those are my two ending stories for you. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, but on that note, final thing for us to do. I asked you before this, uh, before this, could you name or put together your three, uh, favorite American performances thus, or just, you know, seasons thus far for the men and the women, and then your most disappointing performance. We don't have to litigate it all since we are over the two, uh, two hour mark, but Jonathan, your top three most impressive performances. Uh, for the women, I would say number one is uh, uh, Amanda Nisimova. Number two is Sophia Kennan, and number three is Daniel Collins. 
Wow. So we obviously, I think one and two, you you can't, there's, you know, why would I even waste time arguing? Number three for me, uh, I get why you have Collins, the semifinal, just that sort of result for college times. We touched on all that. I had Allison Risk, and that's very biased. That includes no, this no, 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 <laughs> no. Well, can I explain why I had it? No, no. No, the reason I had her number three is because I wanted to give you a chance to talk about how, at the end of this podcast, how great her title was this week. Oh, okay. Well, that's fair. But it's I, I, I thought we were excluding this week because uh, this was only a podcast about what happened through the French Open. Yeah, and we were, but I it's I, I call the shots. So Oh you do. That's true. <laughs> um yeah, actually my number four was uh was uh Osigwe because I think Ooh. that she's quietly had a, a really wonderful year and um uh, I'm excited about the progress that she's made. But uh, Can I real quick on that, just to add some context, she won the Australian Open Wildcard Challenge, was on the precipice of winning the French Open Wildcard Challenge, came in second there, but got a title along the way, I believe, in Charlottesville. Uh yeah, completely echo your point there. Um yeah, Allison Risks win uh you know I've, I've had a hard life. Like, uh, you know, I've never won a Nobel Prize like I expected to by this point. I, uh, I've, uh, I've lost most of my hair, all these things. But Allison Risk's win today made up for every bad thing that's happened to me over the last decades. It was so wonderful. And, you know, I don't think that everybody in the crowd, I know, you know, parochial, like I was saying, the Dutch crowd was rooting for Kiki Burtons and they should and Kiki's a great player and seems like a great person um, and the best player in, in the history of the Netherlands in terms of rankings I believe but uh, except for Tom Ocker I guess but like she she had lost her last six finals we had a whole conversation at the end of last year about her struggles in tight matches and it just felt like time after time after time she would get within inches of winning a match and then something bad would happen a forehand would fly long like she just seemed to lose it and after winning you know after winning her semifinal against Kudermatova yesterday um that was really exciting because she because Kudermatova served for the match twice um for her to come back from a set and 4-1 down to have five match points and not to save the match points and like, oh, you know, wait for Kiki to make a mistake. No, she approached the net and most of those with good approach shots and then put away volleys that she was just like blissfully calm about. And then to go down an additional break in the third set and to come back, survive a rain delay, come back, stay focused and composed and just continue to play the lights out grass course tennis that she's capable of playing at least not at, at tournaments other than Wimbledon, at least that just, it just, it felt so good for a fan of hers, but also just a fan of tennis. It was just, it was a, a wonderful story. Yeah. I, I completely agree. And that's why I wanted to sneak her on. So you could, I knew you would say it much more eloquently than I could. Um, yeah, it, it was fantastic to watch that Jennifer Brady's run was sidelined so quickly as impressive as it was because of the way, I mean, again, we saw the social media outpouring for Allison Risks, whose struggles have been well-documented. Just a great title. It, it just was an excellent way to start a Sunday. Yeah, and, you know, for someone who has been considered a, glass, a grass court specialist, for her to get, you know, finally her first grass court title, um, 
was also really kind of special. You know, she's uh, almost 29 years old. I think in a couple of weeks she'll, she'll be turning 29. So she's closer probably to the end of her career than the beginning of her career. But, you know, playing her best tennis and, um, uh, you know, for the, the thing that she was supposed to be, supposed to be her best to, to finally get it done against a top five player. Ah, it's just so many good storylines. Perfect transition. <laughs> but more grass specialist. Allison Risk post this title or Dennis Kudla? Um, well, in terms of specialists, I would I would say Dennis is still a little bit more of a of a specialist just because um Risk has had a title on and she's had top ten wins on other surfaces, uh specifically on hard. And she's, um, uh, you know, gotten to the fourth round of a, of a major on hard. You know, she doesn't only have, even though she has more success on grass and she's definitely higher ranked on grass, she's not only successful on grass. And, and Kudla, you know, he's had some decent wins on hard courts, but he always shows up, although today he lost to Meringue. But, uh, <laughs> but, but, you know, to, to, I don't see him. But we beating. agreed we're not counting this week. Right, exactly. But I don't see him ever like beating a Moan Feast, for instance, on hardcore um, or on clay, of course. And uh, so I would say that he's still more, from a relative perspective, a little bit more of a grass court specialist than Allison Risk. Uh, the, the, the example, I guess, that could have swung it, had Kudla won that match against team at the Australian Open, I think it was two years ago. Um, uh that five setter, the one that went late into the night, that was a great match from him. But I agree. I just think his ground strokes so much more effective on the grass. They stay low, they stay flat, they drive through the court. He's so adept at changing directions, which is obviously a skill you need to have on the grass court. Yeah, yeah. And I feel like the backhand down the line, which it can be an effective shot on any surface, he just seems to have that much more confidence when it's on grass to mm-hmm. to hit that into have that be his finishing shot. Yeah. I've repeated this joke multiple times, but hit my the favorite uh, YouTube thing I've seen all year is when, where they were doing their preview for the clay season, and they asked what's everyone's favorite part of the clay year, and Dennis Kudla said that we're that much closer to grass season. Uh, <laughs> that's just a, a great joke by him, so well done. But all right, we, we talked about the women. Top three on the men's side? Uh, it's tough. There's like four that are kind of tied. Um, but I'm going to say number one, Tiafo, just because he won me my bet with uh, Brad Gilbert, which I <laughs> getting to where I wasn't ever going to win. Uh, which, is, by the way, should have been a storyline of the year. That's my fault. Oh, uh, good point. Um, for those who don't know, I bet a few years ago, Brad Gilbert, he didn't remember, but uh, he came through with it that uh, 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 an American man born 1996 or later would get to the quarterfinal of a major before before the end of 2020 and uh, Tiafo did it with seven majors to spare. So um, I think that alone, despite his other, um, his other, with the exception of uh, one tournament, you know, his other struggles this year, I think that uh, that puts him at number one for me, number two, Opelka um, for obvious reasons. And then number three, I'm going to put Ty Kwiatkowski a little bit of head of uh, Taylor Fritz because um He's a one player. Uh, you know what? I'm going to make a tie between Ty and Giron. Ty, Ty. Yeah. Um, Giron was, I think, higher than, than Kwiatkowski coming in. He's had a better year. Um, but uh, I just didn't have huge expectations for Kwiatkowski this year, and he's consistently been showing up and 
winning matches where he looked like he was going to be out of it. And, you know, I think for me, a little knock on him in, in college, even though he was a national championship with Virginia, is that he sometimes wasn't able to close out matches that uh, I thought he should have been closing out. And uh, he's been doing that in the pros uh, this year. So uh, hats off to him. But Marcos Giron, I don't want to forget him. He's uh, he's He's been a real revelation this year, and I'm really happy for him. Yeah, um, it's funny. I just I was texting West stuff. I you'll appreciate this text. He I was telling him how long we were going, and he goes, "Can we cut it into two episodes?" And I was like, <laughs> oh, uh, "I guess that'll have to be the theme." Uh, yeah, I uh, I mean, Tiafo Opelka. I have them reversed. I think Opelka getting his first ATP title. That he's healthy now. That he's established himself in the top uh, seventy-five. As he says, he doesn't have to play on the T tour anymore. He'll be <laughs> on, you know playing ATP full times. That for me, that jump is significant enough to have him number one. Because Tiafo won you hit your bet with Brad Gilbert, and obviously the success he's had. I have him number two. I had Giron number three, but you could make an argument for a bunch. I mean, Max Cressy goes out in Cleveland and wins a challenger title that's crazy I mean that's just given that we haven't seen too many huge breakthroughs on the men's side this year that in itself noticeable um Altamirano Ty Kwiatkowski steadily progressing into that top 200 Mitchell Kruger's win in Dallas that he's up to a career high yeah both guys you could consider as well not to mention his uh his run at Australian Open qualities was great yeah, but I, exactly. But I would give the slightest of bumps to Giron just because the way he's come back from what was a double hip replacement and that he made he won a challenger in Orlando to start his year. Uh, obviously, he made the semifinals in Cleveland, made the I believe semifinals in not Little Rock, but in in Sarasota as well um, and then obviously the Indian Wells run he had knocking off Kesmenovic, Shardy, Dimenauer losing in three sets to Rayonic by far the biggest breakout of his career I even think I saw him on a, on a commercial in Tennis Channel and you have to wonder would that Whoa. have happened yeah, exactly. Oh, should we also talk about maybe uh, the storyline back getting hurt? The Tennis Channel curse is real. Oh god I mean it is. There's nothing else to say. I mean, it, and um, the show seems to be like a great opportunity for the players and to bring people close to the players. And I love the concept of kind of a reality type show, but without the throwing of, you know, of cocktails into other people's faces. But like, my God, has anybody come out of that unscathed? I don't think so. I'm trying to, off the top of my head, Sam Groth retired, Lucy uh, Shafashiva retired. Um, Coco Vandaway out all year. Jared Donaldson uh, out. Out basically all year. Um, uh, Nicole Gibbs out now. Um, uh, Mackie surgery. Uh, and am I forgetting a couple or is that everybody? No, I think that's everyone. Yeah. That, and that, that you could be forgetting someone speaks to the fact that this curse is real. It's, and I, and you know, curse is a big word, but you, you have to start, like, can you not, you have to start speculating, like, are they doing something you know, because of the show differently in terms of their training or like their, their, um, their routines or whatever, or are they thinking about it too much? Like, Oh, I'm not just performing for my fans. I'm performing for the camera. Or is it just completely weird, weird luck? Like what the hell? <laughs> How did yeah. this happen? What I would say is next time tennis channel, com- well, 
I'm a huge fan of Tennis Channel. I love all of their work. I think their products are incredible. But the next time they come to you, say, actually, let's do a Tennis Channel Cracked Rackets series because we know there's a <laughs> Cracked Rackets blessing and it offsets anything about an alleged Tennis Channel curse. That's such a good idea. <laughs> Dude, that's a million-dollar idea. Who wouldn't um, want to watch an Alice Gruskin reality show? Uh, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, just wait to episode two, Alex eats Chipotle. That'll be where I lose the series. It's um, episode one. <laughs> That's so funny. Uh, no, yeah, episodes three through seven are just me watching the Little Rock Challenger on repeat. <laughs> uh, no, but yeah, the, so oh, those. How good, how good was John McNally's win, by the way, over Orlando Luce? That was really fun. Uh, I mean, John McNally is, it's a loaded name for me at this point. I can't even think about him without thinking about all of the things that come with college tennis. And I'm trying my hardest to not think about college tennis for at least a week. Um, but that being said, the forehand's real. Like the serve is real. Yep. This guy, he go. he's, I mean, everyone swings as hard as possible, but you can, it's a visual experience. You can see the, the racket speed and just with the ferocity with which he swings. Yeah. And I got a game off him. So I feel like transitively, wow. I beat Orlando Luz. I actually got two games off him, but that's a story we've talked about plenty of times. Um, so, yeah, that, that's my thoughts on McNally. What do you think about J.J. Wolf losing first round? Uh, I'm curious to know how healthy J.J. Wolf is, just the way he ended the college season. And, uh, you know, these these losses don't seem to be part of his pattern of play and when i've seen him play his best he doesn't feel like he should be losing some of these matches so um and i heard some talk that he might not have been 100 percent. so I'm, I'm just a little bit curious about what his physical state is right now i heard that similar talk and it was a little bit disappointing which brings us to the final thing we're going to do jonathan your most disappointing uh, american woman of the earliest part of 2019 is sloan stevens really for all the reasons you mentioned earlier yeah, I mean, I think it's fair for you to expect at least one final out of her at this point, right? She's top 10. I mean, it would have been nice to see. And yeah, a semifinal at a, at a premier event, a quarterfinal at a Grand Slam. She loses in the quarterfinals of Charleston to the winner of the event. Obviously, you're, you're nitpicking because it speaks to how good the WTA uh, Americans have been. Um, it's kind of nitpicking, but let me look really quickly so her record against um top 20 players this year is he's only played one i think and she lost that match yeah yeah the or no no she played two she played madison keys and kiki burnt and she lost both of those matches oh and then Mugurusa was 19 so that's one top 20 win on the season that's that's not what you should be expected from a top 20 top 10 player yeah i think that's completely fair i would say um my choice and again this isn't me trying to be rude it's just me i, I we talked about it earlier i had such high expectations for her coming into the season caroline dalahide who's sitting at 12 and 15 right now as i mentioned she's i believe in in the 280 range of the rankings just really ha- has not been able to find her footing uh you know in terms of at these results she had to play qualifying in the Serbiton uh 
100k. Uh, she just really, I think she's won back-to-back matches in only, she made the final in Pelham, but that beyond that, really no outstanding results this year. I just, I love her game. I think she's got a pro serve. I think she's got weapons for ground strokes, and it, it's upsetting to me that, you know, some of her losses, while in three sets, it's to players I had thought she had surpassed by the end of last year. Yeah, I had heard for two. So then on on the men's side, I, I'm sure you can guess my answer, but your most disappointing player? Uh, uh, this you is can't say all of them. I know. <laughs> 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 um, uh, I'll say Bjorn for Tangelo. Uh, do, you want, do you want to get into that? You got two more minutes in you? Um, yeah. Bjorn is just somebody who I, I I I root for really really hard. I feel like he's somebody who has um, matured as he's gotten older and is a really thoughtful player. And um, while he doesn't have um, like the huge weapon that that you want to see out of out of your best guy, he's got a solid all around game. And it just feels a little inexplicable why he hasn't been able to like. He's and he knows it himself, and maybe it's another thing that's sort of in his head that that um, you know string a few more a few weeks together that would just keep him like I don't think Jordan Thompson is a significantly better player than than Bjorn Fortangelo, and uh, yet you saw Jordan Thompson reach an ATB final this weekend, and uh, you see you know Bjorn Bjorn did get to a grass court semi so. That's only one step below a couple of years ago, but yeah, I just, I want him to be that, that top 80 guy who is, you know, where Bradley Klon is, although I don't know how long Bradley Klon's going to stay there, where Jordan Thompson is, you know, a solid ATP level pro who can win a match, you know, on a regular basis, get to a couple of quarterfinals in a year and then another semifinal and he's not there and I, it's almost inexplicable to me. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you, especially because of how well-rounded his game is. And we saw the first that he played against Djokovic was at Indian Wells this year. Mm. It was just kind of a glimpse of all that Bjorn Fortangelo can be on a tennis court. And yep. it's just, it's the inability. I mean, I feel like I get, maybe not once a week, but bi-weekly I get texts from you. It's, oh, Bjorn down in a buster. And it's just like, what what can we do? I, I, I don't know if there's anything we can do, but yeah, I agree with you. It's just the guy, it seems like all of the skills, all of the shots are there. He just has yet to put it together for an extended period. Yep. And, um, you know, and initially I had Steve Johnson a little higher on my list. Uh, but um, I guess if you're talking like from an emotional perspective, like who's like given me the most emotional pain, I just because maybe I'm more invested in Bjorn's career right now than or the last couple of years than Steve's and um, that's why I'm putting it. But Steve's been another person who's like doesn't seem like his results have matched his talent in 2019. Yeah, completely agree with you. For me, you talk about both emotional and from a tennis standpoint, the duo of Stefan Kozlov and Ernesto Escobedo. I mean, these guys cannot buy back-to-back wins for Kozlov. Yep. He's 12-11 and 11 on the year in singles. I think his best result is he made the final of a transition tour event in Calabasas in March, but just at the challenger level, you know, first-round losses, second-round losses, his best result, a round of 16 to start the year in Orlando. Just no... Tr- 
traction for a guy who has a challenger title under his belt, who, you know, had made multiple, or has two challenger titles under his belt in singles, excuse me, who had made, you know, a challenger final, I think, in Sacramento against Sam Query in, like, 2015. And for us to be talking about him now, you know, he ended the year in 2016, number 116 in the rankings. He is now at 399. I mean, that's just... I know he's been injured, so that's its own story, but I, you can just see when you're watching him play, there's no rhythm. This was a guy who was all about rhythm, or at least, you know, for himself, every shot, every tool, he's going to use it every match. It's something different you're going to see from him. And just yeah, to me, it felt like his shot making went from being deliberate to being like sporadic. Yeah. yeah. There's no plan. I agree. There's just, there's no plan match for match. He's just, he's trying, he's like, okay, I just want to make balls and hope you miss. And like at a certain level, obviously that just does not work. Well, especially if you don't make balls. Yeah, that that doesn't help either. And speaking of which, part two of that equation, Ernesto Escobedo, you know, this is a guy, he's 5-10 and 10 on the year. You talk about, he's 285 in the singles ranking. Talk about a guy with a forehand and a serve that was supposed to just work. That was supposed to be the baseline. This guy will hit you off the court. And I myself have said in the past, the sound that comes off of the racket when Ernesto Escobedo hits a tennis ball is one of the most pure, electrifying sounds you will hear from any player on tour. And and yet, you know, his as natural athleticism, I suppose, just lateral movement, his ability to move forward, hit volleys were always a question mark. And yet just for him, it seems like everything now has become a question mark. The, the first serve, he's always hovering around that 45 to 50 percent range in terms of percentage. There's just no confidence behind his game. And when you're a guy who's, you know, game plan is to hit his opponent off the court, it's just not going to work. Yeah, Um and he he also looks like he like his um, I don't know just the, the eye test he doesn't look like the same kind of like physical specimen that he was a couple of years ago um, so I I I could be wrong about that it could just be my my um, projecting things onto him but he doesn't have that sort of like doesn't look like he has that same strength about him that he had uh, a couple of years ago and yeah I mean this is a guy who is getting to semis of ATP events and looked like he was the real deal and uh, someone who could constantly, consistently count it on for yet another one of those 96 guys to be um, a top 100 player for, for years to come. And now that's the real, real question mark if he can get to that level anytime in the near future, if ever. I mean, I don't, I can't write anybody off at his age, but my God, yeah. But because his year last year wasn't so hot, that kind of tempered my expectations for this year and I would hit for Kozlov while I feel like my expectations for Bjorn were a little bit higher. Yeah, well that hurts my feelings as well. Um feels like I'm just I'm Stefan Kozlov or it just makes me so sad because again, this is a guy who since I I mean I was what, he's ninety eight, I'm ninety five, so I guess that puts me at fifteen when I first heard about a twelve year old Stefan Kozlov competing at like these Easter Bowls and, you know, the international spring championships and you're just thinking, uh, you know, what what is the upside of this kid because he's so tremendously yeah. talented and it just it always hurts a little bit more when you've been follow- when you have that emotional investment. Well, um, and also that he's he has shown that he can do it on the pro, ex- pro exactly. He's gotten to a quarterfinal of an ATP. He was the been, first to do it, I believe, of the 1998s. Yep, exactly. And he's been top 120. And, you know, Tommy Paul, who 
whose ceiling looks much higher now is just now getting that point. Michael Moe is just getting that point. I mean, these are his peers, and and it feels like they're in, they're playing two different sports right now. Um, things can change, but um, right now it feels like they're playing one one sport and he's he's playing a different one and that it doesn't feel right because he's um yeah he's you know just between you and me and the five hundred thousand people who are listening to this podcast you know he's my my personal he's my personal favorite of of that of that cadre um i just uh i just think he's 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 unique and he's fun and he's like uh really like of the ones that I, cause I interviewed them all when they were playing at the zoo and, and he's the one who was like most mature and like most like treated everybody like uh, they were, they were special. And I don't know. It just, he felt like a real unique, unique person. And I, I still am a huge fan of him personally. I just, ah, man, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm just every match. I'm like, let's do it this time. Let's do it. This time. Yeah. And I, it's, I agree with you. Again, I feel like at this point we're getting sentimental, but that one of the, I think that zoo that you covered was the first time I looked across. I get this is me being stupid, but I remember these sort of things. Stowe Stadium, I'm sitting on court one. You're you're standing on, you know, like the stairwell that takes you down in between the, the courts one, two, three, and four, and five. I'm you're standing on the uh, – you were on the stairwell, and um, – <laughs> I remember I was with one of my friends, and I go, I'm pretty sure that's Joe Kelly. Like, that's the guy from On the Rise Tennis. <laughs> and obviously, that's where this beautiful friendship blossomed from. But with all of that being said, we hit well over not just two hours. We hit the two-and-a-half-hour mark. So, Jonathan, any final thoughts before we wrap up, or did you get all of, everything off your chest? Uh, just that Ash Barty is the other player that caused me a lot of heartache this year, but it's hard to <laughs> can't ever be mad at Ash Barty because she's the world's like nicest human being. But man, is she, has she hurt? She beat five Americans in the French Open. <laughs> he would have had, he could have had five French Open winners. <laughs> Unbelievable. Not to mention her Fed Cup heroics. My gosh, Ash, what are you doing to us? Hey. We helped you win your first major and this is how you repay us. <laughs> Well, that's a perfect note to end on. Well, Jonathan, obviously, it's the analysis like that. That's why I'm so thankful whenever you agree uh, to come on this podcast. Seriously, thank you, as always, for all of your updates, everything you do, uh, keeping us up to date on all things. I feel like we covered everything. I think so. Yeah, and so with that being mind, though, if we missed anything, I'm sure we have already talked about it on our website, CrackedRackets.com, you know, our other podcast platforms, the mini break for your daily updates, Cracked Interviews, if you want to hear from your favorite players, uh, the What the Deuce podcast for a little something different from Christian Harrison gang. Uh, we've got it all firing. You need those immediate updates. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube. Follow at Joe Kelly underscore tennis on Twitter as well. I promise you will not be disappointed by what you see. Uh, I cannot end this podcast, and I'm sure I will have to say this multiple times over the future without a huge thank you to our super producers, Max Fligner and Daniel Westoff, who really, as always, have a fuck of an editing job to do. And I want to give a special shout-out to Max Fligner, who is finished with his MCAT. He will be making his grand return to the podcast soon, and it's been a while for our listeners, so we look forward to having someone who played college tennis on the pod because obviously he did it a lot better than I did. But with that being said, Again, uh, 
to my wonderful co-host, uh, Tennis Fluencer. The you know he is he is my master, Jonathan Kelly. For our super producers, Max Flinkner and Daniel Westoff, and from our entire team at Cracked Rackets, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. Jonathan, we officially are over the two and a half hour mark. So, with that being said, what do we tell our listeners? Hey, great shot. <laughs> You know, you might have to be giving Brad Gilbert a lesson or two after a great shot like that. I love it. And we will will see you all next week. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Jonathan. 